Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. This month we have a full issue. So without further ado, Sarah Forgy will read the abstracts and then I will return with some commentary. Our first paper is from Bidet et al. from Lyon, France. Its title is Comparison of Optimal Positive End Expiratory Pressure and Recruitment Maneuvers During Lung Protective Mechanical Ventilation in Patients with Acute Lung Injury or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. The authors enrolled 12 intubated and mechanically ventilated patients with early acute lung injury or acute respiratory distress syndrome. They conducted a recruitment maneuver with a sustained inflation of 40 centimeters of water for 30 seconds and then set PEEP at 24 centimeters of water. After this, they reduced PEEP stepwise by 4 centimeters of water every 10 minutes. They kept the fraction of inspired oxygen at 0.8. After each PEEP decrement step, they measured PaO2. Optimal PEEP was defined as the PEEP step above which PaO2 decreased by greater or equal to 20%. All the patients then underwent a period of ventilation with a tidal volume of 6 milliliters per kilogram body weight, PEEP at the level set before the experiment, and a plateau pressure less than 30 centimeters of water. Then, each patient underwent three ventilation strategies, each applied for one hour, optimal PEEP alone, Optimal PEEP plus one sustained inflation, 40 centimeters of water for 30 seconds, and optimal PEEP plus sigh breaths. The sigh breaths were twice the baseline tidal volume with a plateau pressure less than 40 centimeters of water every 25 breaths. The optimal PEEP was, on average, 12 centimeters of water. The measurements from the standardization periods were comparable between the three PEEP groups. In the optimal PEEP plus size group, the changes in PaO2 and static compliance were significantly greater than in the other two groups. The authors concluded that size superimposed on lung protective mechanical ventilation with optimal PEEP improved oxygenation and static compliance in patients with early acute lung injury or acute respiratory distress syndrome. Next we have the paper, Metered Dose Inhaler with Spacer Instead of Nebulizer During the Outbreak of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome in Singapore by Ku et al. from Singapore. The authors evaluated 50 consecutive treatments with a metered dose inhaler and spacer administered in the respiratory wards of the National University Hospital of Singapore. They interviewed the patients after each treatment during the outbreak of severe acute respiratory syndrome. They also conducted interviews with 50 nurses who had experience in administering bronchodilators via both nebulizers and meter dose inhaler with spacer. 92% were able to use the meter dose inhaler with spacer effectively. 16% of the patients preferred the nebulizer over meter dose inhaler with spacer. 
58% of patients thought that the metered dose inhaler with spacer was easier to use than the nebulizer, and 34% thought the metered dose inhaler was as easy to use as the nebulizer. 16% of the patients thought that the nebulizer was more effective than the metered dose inhaler with spacer in relieving their symptoms. 96% of the nurses preferred the nebulizer over the metered dose inhaler with spacer. 84% thought that the nebulizer was more effective for treating acute airflow obstruction in the hospital. The authors concluded that, in the inpatient setting during an outbreak of an airborne infection, for treatment of acute airflow obstruction, a metered dose inhaler with spacer is acceptable and preferred by a high percentage of patients. However, a high percentage of nurses had misconceptions regarding the efficacy of and patients' ability to use the metered dose inhaler with spacer. Harbrecht et al. from the University of Pittsburgh present the paper Improved Outcomes with Routine Respiratory Therapist Evaluation of Non-Intensive Care Unit Surgery Patients. In Neurosurgery Step-Down, Trauma Surgery Step-Down, and Trauma Surgery General Units, the authors initiated a respiratory therapist-driven evaluate-and-treat protocol that included a standardized quantitative respiratory therapist-driven patient assessment scale and protocolized interventions. Before and after initiation of the protocol, the authors collected data on non-intensive care unit post-surgery patients at risk for pulmonary complications. The patient groups before and after protocol initiation were well-matched in age, sex, Charlson score, and admitting service. Most of the patients, whether assessed by a physician or a respiratory therapist, were deemed to have low risk of pulmonary complications and did not require any respiratory treatments. The number of respiratory treatments increased after protocol initiation, but the patients who received respiratory treatments after protocol initiation had shorter intensive care unit stay and hospital stay and lower total hospital costs than those who received respiratory treatments before protocol initiation. There was a non-significant trend toward lower mortality after protocol initiation. The authors concluded that the respiratory therapist evaluate and treat protocol for non-intensive care unit surgery patients was associated with more patients receiving respiratory treatments, but decreased intensive care unit and hospital stay and lower total hospital costs. Routine respiratory therapist-driven assessment of non-intensive care unit patients may reduce pulmonary complications in high-risk patients. Rye and Boone from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock present the paper Respiratory Care Clinical Education, a Needs Assessment for Preceptor Training. Via email, the authors asked the directors of accredited respiratory therapist programs to respond to a web-based survey. 74 respiratory therapy program directors from programs across the United States responded. 83% of the respondents' programs offer an associate's degree and 16% offer a baccalaureate degree. 
the majority of the respondents' programs use unpaid clinical preceptors. 32% of the respondents indicated that the preceptors had received no preceptor training. Among the preceptors who did receive training, the duration of training ranged from one hour to six weeks. The training was typically delivered by the Director of Clinical Education or program faculty. 81% of the respondents believed there is a need for a standardized preceptor training program. The respondents' understanding of curriculum for and implementation of preceptor training differed considerably, and there were substantial differences in the content and duration of the existing preceptor training programs. 72% of the respondents had experienced barriers to preceptor training. The authors concluded that a standardized preceptor training program is needed to improve the quality of preceptorship and assure that respiratory therapy programs prepare graduates for 21st century practice. Adult Asthma Disease Management, an analysis of studies, approaches, outcomes, and methods, is by Masajewski et al. from the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. The authors searched the Medline, Embase, Sinol, PsycInfo, and Cochrane databases for studies published in 1986 through 2008 on adult asthma management. With the studies that met the author's inclusion criteria, they examined the clinical, process, medication, economic, and patient-reported outcomes, as well as the study designs, provider collaboration during the studies, and statistical methods. Twenty-nine articles describing 27 studies satisfied the inclusion criteria. There was great variation in the content, extent of collaboration between physician and non-physician providers responsible for intervention delivery, and outcomes examined across the 27 studies. Because of limitations in the design of 22 of the 27 studies, the differences in outcomes assessed, and the lack of rigorous statistical adjustment, the authors could not draw definitive conclusions about the effectiveness or cost-effectiveness of the asthma disease management programs or which approach was most effective. The authors concluded that few well-designed studies with rigorous evaluations have been conducted to evaluate disease management interventions for adults with asthma. Current evidence is insufficient to recommend any particular intervention. The Physiology of Dinosaurs – Circulatory and Respiratory Function in the Largest Animals Ever to Walk the Earth is by Pearson from the University of Washington in Seattle. The cardiopulmonary physiology of dinosaurs, and especially of the long-necked sauropods, which grew much larger than any land animals before or since, should be inherently fascinating to anyone involved in respiratory care. What would the blood pressure be in an animal 12 meters tall? How could airway resistance in dead space be overcome while breathing through a trachea 9 meters long? 
The last decade has seen a dramatic increase in evidence bearing on these questions. Insight has come not only from new fossil discoveries, but also from comparative studies of living species, clarification of evolutionary relationships, new evaluation techniques, computer modeling, and discoveries about the Earth's ancient atmosphere. Pumping a vertical column of blood 8 meters above the heart would probably require an arterial blood pressure greater than 600 millimeters of mercury, and the implications of this for cardiac size and function have led to the proposal of several alternative cardiopulmonary designs. Diverse lines of evidence suggest that the giant sauropods were probably warm-blooded and metabolically active when young, but slowed their metabolism as they approached adult size, which diminished the load on the circulatory system. Circulatory considerations leave little doubt that dinosaurs had four-chambered hearts. Birds evolved from dinosaurs and the avian-type air sac respiratory system, which is more efficient than its mammalian counterpart, may hold the answer to the breathing problems posed by the sauropods' very long necks. Geochemical and other data indicate that, at the time the dinosaurs first appeared, the atmospheric oxygen concentration was only about half of what it is today, and the avian-type respiratory system may have been key in the dinosaurs' evolutionary success, enabling them to outcompete the mammals and dominate the land for 150 million years. What is the legacy of the National Institutes of Health Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome Network? Is by Calais from San Francisco General Hospital. It has been almost 15 years since the National Institutes of Health created the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome Clinical Trials Network, ARDS Network, and nearly a decade since the completion of a landmark low tidal volume trial. In retrospect, the ARDS Network had a profound impact of the design and conduct of clinical trials in critical care. It represented the first time the federal government funded a clinical trials network devoted to phase 3 testing of important non-pharmacologic therapies. Also, the ARDS network introduced factorial design into critical care research, which allowed phase 2 testing of promising therapies. Other important contributions from the ARDS network may not become apparent for many years. These include the ongoing mentoring of a new generation of critical care researchers, as well as continued testing on an enormous store of biological samples that inevitably will advance our understanding of the pathogenesis of ARDS. Perhaps someday this may lead to another therapeutic breakthrough. Part of the ARDS network's legacy surely will have been the opening of a dialogue regarding the design of clinical trials in critical care, as well as a concerted effort to improve the protection of subjects enrolled into those trials. Finally, the respiratory care profession itself has benefited, owing both to its critical role in the successful implementation of complicated therapist-driven protocols, and also the ARDS network's novel practice of utilizing respiratory therapists as clinical coordinators. This has raised the profile and enhanced the stature of the respiratory care profession.
Next, we have the paper from Otter Bein from the Harvard Medical School and the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, entitled The Evolution of Carbon Monoxide into Medicine. The discovery that carbon monoxide, a highly publicized toxic gas molecule, can have powerful benefits and curative effects not only changed how we view carbon monoxide, but has, with tremendous contradiction, resulted in clinical trials of carbon monoxide for the treatment of various pathologies. There is sound preclinical evidence that, at a low concentration, carbon monoxide has benefits in numerous and diverse diseases in rodents, large animals, and humans. Carbon monoxide especially has potential benefits in inflammatory disorders. As carbon monoxide moves ahead in the clinic, we continue to advance our understanding of how it functions, especially as the number of potential clinical applications expands. The mechanisms of action of carbon monoxide at the cellular level depend on the disease and the experimental focus, but the one constant is that carbon monoxide re-establishes homeostasis. Innovations in Mechanical Ventilation is by Branson and Johanneman from the University of Cincinnati. New features of mechanical ventilators are frequently introduced, including new modes, monitoring techniques, and triggering techniques. But new rarely translates into any measurable improvement in outcome. The authors describe four new techniques and define what is a new invention versus what is innovative, a technique that significantly improves a measurable variable. They describe and review the literature on automated weaning, automated measurement of functional residual capacity, neural triggering, and novel displays of respiratory mechanics. Peter Bettet from Children's Hospital Boston presents the paper, Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, Quo Vadis? Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, a form of artificial circulatory support, continues to evolve beyond its well-established neonatal applications. It is often the most aggressive aspect of treatment algorithms in the management of severe respiratory and cardiac failure. While its use is relatively infrequent and executed in a small number of centers, it remains an important supportive measure while organ function is preserved and restored. Refinements in equipment and techniques continue to develop, and patient selection has changed in adults and children, and cardiac applications have gained prominence. Post-operative pulmonary hypertension, etiology and treatment of a dangerous complication, is by Hill et al. from Tufts Medical Center in Boston. Post-operative pulmonary hypertension is a challenging and feared complication of many types of surgery, including lung and heart transplantation, pulmonary thromboendarterectomy, congenital heart disease repair, and others. The most severe manifestation is acute right heart syndrome, characterized by right heart failure and cardiovascular collapse, a daunting therapeutic challenge associated with high mortality. Patients with postoperative pulmonary hypertension must be carefully evaluated to identify reversible contributing factors such as fluid and metabolic imbalance, hypoxemia, and right heart ischemia. 
A pulmonary arterial catheter and echocardiogram are recommended for evaluation, although their value has not been established in carefully designed trials. Basic principles of management include maintenance of systemic perfusion pressure, optimization of cardiac inotropy, use of lung protective ventilator strategies, and attempting to reduce right ventricular afterload using pulmonary vasodilators. Unfortunately, controlled trials upon which to base therapy are lacking, and most approaches are supported only by uncontrolled or anecdotal evidence. Better understanding of the pathophysiology of right heart failure and controlled trials testing therapeutic approaches are needed if we are to make progress in treating this heretofore highly mortal condition. Finally, Bassani et al. from Sao Paulo, Brazil present Non-Invasive Ventilation in a Pregnant Patient with Respiratory Failure from All Transretinoic Acid Syndrome. They report a 34-year-old pregnant woman with acute promyelocytic leukemia who developed acute respiratory failure from all transretinoic acid syndrome. They applied non-invasive ventilation to improve gas exchange, reduce the work of breathing, and prevent intubation. Initially, they applied non-invasive ventilation continuously, then gradually reduced the daily amount of time on non-invasive ventilation as her condition improved. She was discharged from the intensive care unit after 12 days. Three months after hospital discharge, she gave vaginal birth to a healthy female baby. Non-invasive ventilation was effective and safe for the mother and fetus, and it should be considered for respiratory failure in pregnant patients, especially if immunosuppressed. Early in my career, sighs were commonly used with mechanical ventilation. With the introduction of PEEP, the use of sighs went away for the most part, and some commercially available ventilators no longer have a sigh function. Lung protective ventilation that uses small tidal volumes and low airway pressures is the only intervention to date shown to reduce mortality in patients with acute lung injury. But there is also interest in alveolar recruitment maneuvers to reopen airless alveoli and higher levels of PEEP to maintain alveolar recruitment. Clinical studies to date of recruitment maneuvers and higher levels of PEEP have yielded variable results. There have also been several recent studies using size as a lung recruitment strategy. The most recent is by Badet et al. in this issue of the journal. They found that psi breasts, twice the baseline tidal volume with a plateau pressure less than 40 centimeters of water every 25 breaths, improved oxygenation and compliance in patients with acute lung injury. These results are intriguing. But, as pointed out in the editorial by George and Lipinski, more robust clinical trials are required to clarify the outcome benefit of this approach. Although the evidence suggests that use of a meter dose inhaler with spacer is equally effective as a nebulizer in many patients, the nebulizer is still most commonly used in many hospitals. Because aerosol-generating procedures in the hospital, such as the use of a nebulizer, have been implicated in outbreaks of nosocomial infections, it is reasonable that meter dose inhalers rather than nebulizers should be used whenever possible. The paper by Coe et al. relates to this during the outbreak of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, in Singapore. 
In this study, it is interesting that the majority of patients thought that a meter dose inhaler with spacer was easier to use than the nebulizer. On the other hand, nearly all of the nurses preferred the nebulizer over the meter dose inhaler with spacer. A large majority of the nurses thought that the nebulizer was more effective for treating acute airflow obstruction in the hospital. As pointed out in the editorial by Darty and Rubinson, there are major gaps in the implementation of known effective interventions, some of which are not implemented simply because of a lack of clinical awareness. Moreover, clinical education is not sufficient to solve this problem because knowledge does not necessarily translate into practice. Harbrecht et al. instituted a respiratory therapist-driven evaluate-and-treat protocol in neurosurgery step-down, trauma surgery step-down, and trauma surgery general units to facilitate early identification and treatment of patients who would benefit from respiratory treatments. In the patients who received respiratory therapy, the protocol was associated with decreased total hospital costs and stay, and there was a trend toward fewer ICU admissions and lower hospital mortality. This occurred despite more patients receiving respiratory treatments. These data suggest that routine respiratory therapist-driven assessment of non-ICU patients may reduce pulmonary complications in high-risk patients. These results are interesting and potentially important, but given the limitations identified by the authors, the approach described should be studied further to fully appreciate the generalizability of the results. The journal is pleased to publish papers related to respiratory care education, and one such paper is from Rye and Boone this month. Consistent with my own observation, they found that the majority of respiratory care educational programs use on-paid clinical preceptors. I was also not surprised to learn that preceptor training differed considerably. I agree with the authors that a standardized preceptor training program is needed to improve the instructional quality of preceptors and assure that respiratory therapy programs prepare graduates for 21st century practice. I suspect that this will be an increasing challenge because given the current economic climate, it may become more difficult to recruit clinical preceptors and those persons will demand greater training and feedback from the program leadership. The study by Masajewski et al. is of interest because asthma disease management is a topic important to the readers of the journal. It was a surprise that the authors found few well-designed studies with rigorous evaluations of disease management interventions for adults with asthma. As Stuten points out in an accompanying editorial, the mounting healthcare costs and the fact that innovative industries and healthcare practices are greatly outpacing academic research on disease management, there is an urgent need to determine the impact of asthma disease management programs. This seems to me to be an opportunity for our readers involved in asthma disease management to study this important subject. The Donald F. Egan Memorial Lecture is presented each year at the AARC International Respiratory Congress, and a paper is published on that subject the following year in respiratory care. The 35th Egan Lecture is by Editor Emeritus Pearson and deals with the physiology of dinosaurs. Anyone who has ever been fascinated by dinosaurs, and that would be most of us, will be interested in reading this paper. Also presented each year at the International Congress is the Philip Kittredge Memorial Lecture, 
The 24th Kittredge Lecture is by Calais, who discusses the legacy of the Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome Network. As he points out, the respiratory care profession itself has benefited from the studies conducted by this network through the successful implementation of complicated therapist-driven protocols and the novel practice of utilizing respiratory therapists as clinical coordinators. This has raised the profile and enhanced the stature of the respiratory care profession, in addition to the good that it has done to improve the care of patients with acute lung injury. A symposium entitled Current and Evolving Concepts in Critical Care was presented at the 2008 AARC International Respiratory Congress, and we are pleased to publish papers from this symposium this month. We know carbon monoxide as a toxic gas molecule. Thus, it is of interest to learn from Otterbein that low concentrations of carbon monoxide may have potential benefits in inflammatory disorders. In their paper, Branson and Johanneman make a clever distinction between new features of mechanical ventilators that are innovative and those that are merely inventions with limited value. Bettet presents the current status of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in children and adults and helps us take a peek into the future of this therapy. In the final paper from the symposium, Hill et al. discussed the management of postoperative pulmonary hypertension, a challenging and feared complication of many types of surgery. This month's case report by Bizani et al. describes the use of non-invasive ventilation in a pregnant patient with respiratory failure from all transretinoic acid syndrome. The teaching case of the month by PINA addresses the differential diagnosis of pulmonary masses and nodules in immunocompromised patients. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.